Well, if you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We're in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, studying everything Jesus did and said and taught, because we want to know the real Jesus for ourselves, the Jesus of the Bible. Last time we were in this study, we witnessed the moment of the disciples really coming to faith for the first time as Peter answered the most important question any human being can ever answer. Who is Jesus? And if you missed that message, you can find it on the website and give it a listen. This week, we're going to be encouraged as Peter puts his foot in his mouth again, and we're going to be instructed by Jesus on what it means to be a disciple. Make note of this, and then we'll unpack it throughout our study. This is the first fill-in. You can't embrace the cross without embracing the cost. You can't embrace the cross without embracing the cost. As we jump into our story, the disciples have had their spiritual eyes fully open to the reality of who Jesus is. He's the Christ, as Peter said, the Messiah, the son of the living God. They get that now. And we pick up today immediately after that interaction. Minutes later, as Jesus begins to tell them what he, the Messiah, has come to the earth to do. And I think that's informative for us because first they get the revelation that Jesus is God. Then, hear me on this, then they get the details about his death and resurrection. Without the revelation that Jesus is God, there's little to no point having intellectual, in-depth discussions with non-believers about Jesus because you're talking in a language they cannot understand. They literally cannot fathom what you're talking about. It's a mystery is what the Bible says that is only revealed to us by the grace and goodness of God. And who is it revealed to? Those who desire revelation and truth. Write this down. Knowing Jesus is God is the key to understanding everything else about him. Knowing Jesus is God is the key to understanding everything else about him. You can't learn everything else about Jesus and understand it while simultaneously rejecting the fact that he is God. It will be impossible for you to understand. So Jesus lays out his messianic message here in Mark 8, 31. Let's read together. Mark 8, 31. It reads, and he began to teach them that the son of man must, underline must, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and, and then underline, be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Jesus is explicit about where his life and ministry are going. To suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. As Jesus talks about this plainly, prophetically, because it hasn't happened yet, we must never forget that the cross is not a tragedy. It is a triumph that was planned before the foundations of the world. It was not a moment of defeat, but of overwhelming victory. Jesus was not the victim. He was the victor. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized, what does John call Jesus? What title does he give him? He points and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What lamb is he talking about? The Passover lamb, the lamb that is to be sacrificed. It was Jesus' destiny and plan 
all along. It was not a mission that was interrupted by Satan. It was a mission that Satan unwittingly helped fulfill exactly the way the Lord wanted him to. This is the first time in the Gospels that Jesus speaks plainly to his disciples about his resurrection. From what we're about to read, it seems that Peter and the disciples most likely held to what was known and is still known as the two Messiahs view, and many Jews believe this to this day. The two Messiahs view comes from the problem that when you read all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, if you imagine them falling sort of like from the sky, they tend to land in two different piles and they're not compatible because one stream of prophecies describes the suffering servant, the Messiah who's coming to be killed as a sacrifice for his people for sins. The other stream of prophecies describes a coming, conquering king. Those are incompatible concepts. They can't come together at the same time. And so the way that most Jews reconciled that is they said, oh, there's going to be two messiahs. One is going to be the suffering servant. The other is going to be the conquering king. We know from the word of God, it's not two messiahs. It's one messiah two comings. He came the first time that we read about in the Gospels as the suffering servant, and he will come again at the end of the seven-year tribulation to establish his kingdom on the earth as the conquering king. We know that, but if you were Jewish, alive at the time of the Gospels, you probably held the two Messiahs view, and you would look around you and you would see Israel occupied by the very definition of paganism, the Roman Empire. You would look around and see God's people, Israel, being ruled by Roman authorities, taxed by Rome, and you would observe generally a perfect time for the coming of the conquering king, Messiah. Because if this is the situation, we don't need the suffering servant, we need the political, we need the militant Messiah to come and liberate Israel and bring practical freedom to her. We don't need a suffering servant. So even though Peter and the disciples believed Jesus to be the Messiah, they thought the purpose of all his miracles, his demonstrations of power, was to establish him as the conquering king, Messiah. So when Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again, the disciples are all thinking, um... That's not the plan. That's not how the story goes. And Peter lets Jesus know this. Perhaps the most nonsense verse in the whole Bible. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus Christ. Peter began to rebuke him. Matthew's gospel tells us that Peter said to Jesus, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. See, Peter wanted the prosperity gospel, some health, wealth, and happiness for all of Israel. Cut that out, Jesus. That's a negative confession. The kingdom of God isn't about suffering and rejection. And by the way, that's no way to build a following. Rabbi Osteen says we must not speak this way. But but as we know, there's no crown without the cross. And by the way, do you notice that Peter completely misses the last part where Jesus says, and after three days rise again? How do you not zone in on that? But it goes completely over Peter's head. Why? Because he's just like you and me, constantly focusing on the negative and so focused on the now that we miss the big picture. Write this down. Peter's focus on present suffering caused him to miss the promise of future glory. Peter's focus on present suffering caused him to miss the promise of future glory. 
Peter had already tuned out before Jesus even got to the end of the sentence. Isn't that just like you and I? The Lord says to us, trust me with your finances because I want to lead you to the place where money doesn't keep you in fear anymore. Instead of saying, oh, thank you, Lord. We say, trust you with my finances. Do you have any idea how difficult that would be? How could you ask me to do that? Or the Lord says to us, I I want you to humble yourself and serve your spouse. And and through your kindness, I'm going to break down their stubbornness. I'm going to break this deadlock in your marriage. We don't go, wow, thank you for that answer, Lord. We go, you want me to do what? To who? Are you insane? So focused on the present suffering that we miss the big picture, what the Lord really wants to do. Verse 33, but when he, Jesus, had turned around and looked at his disciples. So Jesus, before he answers Peter, he turns around, makes sure the rest of the disciples are all watching. Not because he wants to single Peter out, but because Jesus knows they're probably all thinking the same thing. It's just that Peter is the only one with the guts to actually say it out loud. So Jesus addresses this to all of them, even though he's speaking to Peter. Verse 33, can you imagine? But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of. In other words, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of men. So Peter, minutes earlier, has had his best moment as a disciple. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Enjoy it, Peter. Your success is going to last five minutes at the most before you do this. Why is this such a big deal? I mean, based on Jesus' reaction, I think we can assume this is a big deal, right? Jesus seems pretty worked up about it. Notice what Jesus says to Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. This is not the only place in the Gospels where Jesus says that phrase. You may recall that before Jesus' ministry really starts, he goes through 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness. Toward the end of those 40 days, when Jesus is at his weakest, Satan shows up incarnate to tempt Jesus himself, trying to derail his mission on the earth. And Satan's last temptation is described back in Matthew chapter 4. It's on your outlines. Let me read it to you. It says, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What's Satan's pitch to Jesus? It's this, Jesus, I hold the title deed to the earth right now. You want it. In fact, we both know you came to the earth to get it. But Jesus, you don't have to be tortured and murdered to get it. That, that's beneath you. You're God in the flesh. That's, that's no sort of plan for the Son of God. All you need to do is bow down to me and I'll give it to you. You're Jesus. You shouldn't be killed. You're a righteous man. My way would be so much easier. It says, then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. When Jesus says, Away with you, Satan. Guess what the literal translation is? Get behind me, Satan. That's what the text actually says. Peter is unwittingly repeating the same temptation that Satan brought to Jesus at the end of those 40 days, resulting in Jesus repeating the same response. Even though the mouthpiece of the temptation is different, the author of the temptation is the same. It's Satan. So Peter is unwittingly saying the same thing. That's no plan for you, Jesus. You're the Messiah. You shouldn't die. That's no plan for you. 
Write this down. Peter, despite his good intentions, gives voice to demonic doctrine. Despite his good intentions, he gives voice to demonic doctrine. That's what it is. It's demonic doctrine. He's telling Jesus, you're the conquering king. You don't need to die. That's not in the script. Do you understand that good intentions do not make sinful things righteous? It's the blood of Jesus that covers sins, not good intentions. Good intentions don't mean that bad doctrine doesn't need to be dealt with among the disciples of Jesus. Well, it was a little heretical, but their heart's in the right place. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous. It's dangerous. That's why the Bible cautions the church against putting recent converts in positions of leadership. Why? Because zeal without knowledge is dangerous. When Matthew's gospel records this event, it notes that Jesus calls Peter a stumbling block, literally. Talk about highs and lows. So just a short while ago, Peter was the man of faith, the kind of faith Jesus would use to build his church. Now Jesus is saying, oh, you're still a rock, Peter. Just that right now you're being the kind of rock that causes people to stumble. That's what you're doing to me right now. Ouch. Don't be hard on Peter, though. Don't judge Peter. Learn from Peter because what he does, we all do, and we're all in danger of doing at any moment. Just because a believer has a deep understanding of the scriptures, a close walk with Jesus, insights into the nature of God, doesn't mean they're not capable of doing something ludicrously stupid at any given moment. Because the moment we lean on our own understanding, instead of trusting the Lord, our judgment becomes clouded. Write that down. The moment we lean on our own understanding instead of trusting the Lord, our judgment becomes clouded. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what title you hold. The moment you lean on your own understanding, your judgment becomes clouded. Despite our good intentions, we can end up becoming the mouthpiece of Satan. That's what happened to Peter. And by the way, parenthetically, can you believe Jesus had the nerve to speak to the first pope that way? Get behind me, Satan. I mean, clearly Jesus didn't realize who Peter was. Had he realized that Peter was infallible, I'm sure Jesus would have held his tongue. I'm being facetious, of course. So how might Peter's mistake look in our lives? Here's what's really happened. Jesus has said one thing. Peter has said, I don't think that's right. I disagree with you, God. I don't think that's how things should go. How about this? We know another believer who's walking in disobedience to the Lord in an area of their life, and they talk to us about it, and they say, but it doesn't seem so wrong to me. It doesn't feel wrong. And instead of standing with the truth of God's word, we say, yeah, I'm, I'm sure the Lord understands. We're, we're living in a different time. Or how about this? We find an area of our life where we want to live contrary to the word of God because it seems good to us. And then we take it a step further. We, we go and seek out other people who we know will affirm our view and agree with us that what we're doing is okay. And we say, I know what you've said, Lord, but I really think this would be better. And Steve thinks so too. So does Susie over there. It all comes back to one of my favorite quotes of all time. Write this down. The phrase, no, Lord, is an oxymoron. The phrase, no, Lord, is an oxymoron because you can't call him Lord and simultaneously say no to him. If he's your Lord, then it's yes, Lord. 
Yes, Lord. Jesus comes down on Peter hard because Peter is unwittingly trying to derail Jesus' mission to save humanity. You think that might be a big deal? Yeah, Peter, if I listen to you, humanity would be damned forever. That's why I'm not going to listen to you, Peter. Now, let me ask the most obvious question ever. Do you think that when it was all said and done, Peter was glad that Jesus ignored his counsel and decided to die on the cross? I think he was ecstatic about it. If Jesus doesn't do that, Peter spends eternity separated from God. We have no idea the disasters we're risking when we choose to go against the Lord's plan. You know, it's not true. We all know the kind of disasters we're risking because we've all done it, haven't we? We've all found ourselves in huge messes because we've lived through some terrible decisions to do things our way instead of the Lord's way. There are prayers we pray. There are things we ask for that we don't get. And the reason is because the Lord is saying, trust me, you don't want me to answer that prayer. Peter, you do not want me to answer that request right now with a yes. Trust me. Thank God Jesus didn't heed Peter's advice. Thank God Jesus doesn't always heed our advice. Thank God Jesus does what is right and good for his children and for his glory. In that moment, Peter had no idea what was right and good. That's why we have God's word. That's why we have the church to to give us access to wise counsel and seasoned believers because even though you might be a, a spiritual giant, when you cross over into your own flesh and your own understanding, there's gonna be moments when you have no idea what is right and good because you're leaning on your own understanding instead of trusting the Lord. In those moments, we gotta listen to Jesus and not ourselves. Practically, I think this is a call to humility for us as believers because we encounter moments in life all the time where we have to make judgment calls. You know what Satan wants us to do? Make those calls of our own power in our own flesh, with our own understanding. Satan wants us to bypass God and just do what we think is best. And the more Satan can get us to do that, the more stupid and destructive mistakes we're gonna make. As I was studying this, I was just reminded, I I need to do a better job of slowing down and recognizing how many decisions in my life really need to be considered above my pay grade. They need to belong to the Lord. I need to spend more time seeking God's wisdom in his word rather than reasoning with my own wisdom, wisdom in parentheses. Better to arrive slowly at an answer that is rooted in the wisdom of God than quickly at an answer that is rooted in our own wisdom, which is really no wisdom at all. Just think about this. There is great wisdom in being wise enough to seek great wisdom. There is great wisdom in being wise enough to seek great wisdom. It's Proverbs 3, 5. It's on your outline. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. It's James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. Pro tip. If you think you have wisdom and don't need to ask for it, you probably don't have wisdom and you need to ask for it. Do you think there may have been some awkward silence after Jesus and Peter's interaction? I'm guessing that for Peter, it was a long walk wherever they were going. 
And now please, you need to hear what Jesus says next. I need to hear what Jesus says next because Jesus is going to describe the cost of being his disciple, the cost of following him. And he's not gonna let anybody off the hook. He's gonna be very, very specific. Verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus says, daily take up his cross and follow me. And there's a flow here because I believe it has to be in this order. Jesus is telling us this is the difference between just being a believer and being a disciple. This is why some people never go further in the faith than having just enough faith to be saved from hell. They never become disciples. They live their lives as powerless, impotent Christians, never becoming disciples. This is the process that distinguishes a believer from a disciple. Notice the process here. The first thing that happens is a desire to follow Jesus. Make a note of that. It begins with a desire to follow Jesus. Then what happens next is not that you raise your hand in church or pray a special prayer. It's that you agree to trade his life for yours. His life for yours. It's agreeing that Jesus died in your place on the cross. It's agreeing that Jesus rose from the dead in your place. It's agreeing that you get his righteousness in exchange for your sinfulness. You get eternal life instead of eternal damnation. You get his life, but what's the flip side of that? He gets your life. Let me say it simply, your life belongs to Jesus. It's not about self-denial, it's about denying yourself, denying even ownership of yourself. That's an exchange that happens at the moment of salvation, his righteousness for your sinfulness. But then there's the daily putting to death of oneself, waking up and beginning the day by acknowledging, you know, I, I don't own myself. I don't get to demand my rights from the Lord. I was bought with a price, I belong to Jesus, and today I'm going to live according to his agenda and not mine because I don't even own myself. I'm not my own person, I'm God's person. Finally, if you've given over ownership of yourself to Jesus, the next question even logically becomes, what does he want me to do? as his property, as his belonging, as his bondservant, what does he want me to do? Jesus tells us, take up your cross daily and follow me. Where? Wherever he leads. When? Whenever he wants. At what cost? Your life, if need be. You're carrying a cross, remember? The third step is this, you embrace the life he calls you to live. You embrace the life he calls you to live, regardless of the cost. If there's no desire to follow Jesus, you're definitely not gonna give him your life. If you're unwilling to give him your life, you're never gonna live the life he wants you to live. This is what it means to give your life to Jesus, and this is what it means to live as a disciple every single day. You can't embrace the cross without also embracing the cost. Have you made it through that process or have you stalled? Did you have the desire to follow Jesus but you've been unwilling to give up your life? I have rights. No, you don't. No, you don't. Are you unwilling to let him be the one who calls the shots in your life? You know, Jesus anticipates those objections. Jesus anticipates the person who says, it's my life, I'm in charge. I can't give up my sovereignty. 
Check out what Jesus says in verse 35. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He's speaking to the person who says, I can't step out in faith and trust God. I, I need to save myself. So I'll be a good person. And however this thing shakes down, that'll be good enough. This applies to salvation, but it applies to every other area of life. This is the person who says, I, I know what God's word says about relationships, but I got to make this thing happen. Time's moving. It doesn't matter if they're not a believer. I, I got to take what I can get. I got to take care of me. Or I can't trust God with my money. This is real life. I got to save myself here. I got a plan. Jesus is telling us that salvation comes to the one who realizes they need Jesus to save their life because they can't save their life. And then write this down. For us, Jesus is telling us that life comes to the areas of our lives that we surrender to the Lord. Life comes to the areas of our lives that we surrender to the Lord. That means doing things his way. This is truth. If you want to experience life in any area of your life, put God first in that area. See what happens. There's not enough hours in the day. Give the first part of your day to the Lord. I can't do that. That's taking more time out of my day. It's not how God works. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It applies to all of life, and it pains me to watch the most brilliant men and women of our time devote themselves to trying to achieve immortality through science and medicine and technology. They're trying to save their own lives while pridefully refusing that they need Jesus to save their lives. Jesus says, try and save your life. Go ahead. You'll end up losing it. Jesus says, you who are so concerned about giving up my life, understand this. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Still don't get it? Jesus asked the most profound question of all time when it comes to priorities. Verse 36, underline this. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. The weight of that question is, is crushing. I don't know what else to say it. It's so heavy. It's so weighty. It, it immediately shuts up all the noise of this world that screams at us every single day, trying to get us to shift our focus from eternity onto the temporal, trying to convince us that the pursuit of happiness here and now on the earth and earthly things is all that matters. Jesus asked this one question and like a sharp two-edged sword dividing between soul and spirit, he just says, let me ask you this. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Jesus is answering the person who says, but, but this stuff is really fun. It's enjoyable. It's meaningful to me. Jesus says, okay, well, let's, let's play this thing out. Let's say that if you really focus on this life, you're able to get absolutely everything you want out of this life. Let's say it works out perfectly. You marry the perfect, hottest person. You have a, a huge paycheck, a, a mansion on every continent. You're adored by millions. You have unparalleled political power. Let's say all of that happens for you. Answer me this. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? 
the heaviness that you and I feel when Jesus says that is the weight of Jesus pulling down the fake scenery on this pageant of life that Satan has created. It's Jesus tearing down the walls of illusion and delusion and deception that Satan tries to build around us every day. It's Jesus bringing that all crashing down with one question and saying, look, this is reality. This is reality. All of those things are meaningless. Solomon says vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. If you want to unpack that idea of the worthlessness of the things of this world, Solomon does it for you in the gloriously depressing book of Ecclesiastes. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? Jesus is painting a picture for us Imagine standing before God one day because we all will one day and realizing you spent your whole life trying to save your own life and now you've lost it. In that moment when you're standing before God, Jesus is saying, what are you going to offer him in exchange for salvation? What trade are you going to make with God when the scales are brought out and your sin is weighed on one side? What are you going to give to God to balance that out? Your holiday homes, your private jet, your Twitter followers, your Facebook likes, your important position in your company, your sound and diverse investment portfolio, your good looking boyfriend or girlfriend. What are you going to offer God that's going to make God go, oh yeah, I'll take that trade. The God who lacks nothing Jesus says there's only one thing that balances those scales. That's my work on the cross. And unless you're willing to lose your life by giving it to me, your debt cannot be repaid. You don't have the power. It doesn't matter if you own everything in the universe. I don't need it. It's already mine. Your sin cannot be atoned for. Your soul cannot be saved by anything you can bring to the table. What will a man give in exchange for his soul. We're going to end with this last verse, and I think it's such an important verse for our time. We live in an age where increasingly God's word is at odds with our culture. I don't know if you've noticed this. And many Christians are struggling with this. Many Christians have this internal conflict that goes something like this. Uh, Jesus wants us to love people and not be judgmental, but... Most people find some things in his word very unloving and very judgmental. Ah, what am I going to do? This verse speaks to that issue head on with pinpoint, crystal clear clarity. So if you're here today, hear Jesus and never be confused about this issue again. Verse 38, for underline, whoever is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. When you first read this, you're all freaked out because you're all thinking, I don't want Jesus to be ashamed of me when he comes in glory. I don't even know what that means, but I know it's bad. So we're going to unpack that in a minute and explain what Jesus is talking about. But I don't want us to miss the crucial first part of what Jesus says. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words... You know, there's a reason Jesus doesn't just say, whoever is ashamed of me. I believe that reason is because people love to hijack Jesus. They love to take Jesus, give him a makeover, and he ends out coming out as 
a savior figure who mirrors the exact values of our culture. People love to hijack Jesus and say, Jesus is loving and gracious, so he wouldn't do this, 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 this. So Jesus doesn't just say, whoever's ashamed of me. He says, whoever's ashamed of me, and, and what? And my words. Because his words are the scriptures, the Bible. Jesus, so get this, Jesus links the two together, himself and his word, because he wants us to understand they're one and the same. Read John 1. He is his word and his word is him. If you're ashamed of his words, you're really ashamed of him. Jesus is saying, you can't say, I'm not ashamed of my wife. I mean, I'm horribly embarrassed about her appearance and the way she conducts herself every moment of every day, but I'm not embarrassed about her. We would say, you can't separate her appearance and her personality from her. Her appearance and her personality are part of her. They are her. Jesus is saying, so too is my word me. It's me. If you're embarrassed of my words, you're embarrassed and ashamed of me. So let's make this real. What, what does it mean to be ashamed of Jesus and his words? What would be some examples from our own lives? It's the Christian who, when confronted by a coworker or a family member about something they find offensive in the Bible, responds by saying, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I know it's in there, but, but I don't really agree with that. I don't think that represents who Jesus really is. It's being ashamed of the words of Jesus. It's the Christian who, when asked to celebrate something sinful, excuses themselves by saying, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not really feeling well today. Sorry, I can't make it. Instead of saying, you know, I, I don't believe in that. It's being ashamed of the words of Jesus. It's the church that doesn't ever mention certain things from the Bible because they know people might get offended and leave. When they teach on certain parts of the Bible, they leave stuff out to make it more palatable for people. Hey, Jesus, I know you wrote that, but I'm just gonna give you a helpful edit to make it more effective. It's being ashamed of the words of Jesus. It's the Christian who finds themselves in a conversation with another Christian, knows that person needs to be reminded of what the word of the Lord says, but knows if they do that, the conversation's gonna get very awkward because it's not what the other person wants to hear right now. So they cop out with a simple, you know, God's with you. That's all that matters. It's being ashamed of the words of Jesus, knowing the good we ought to do and not doing it. It's the Christian who views their faith as a private matter. It's between me and God, even though God's word says we are to shine as lights in the world. It's the Christian who thinks the greatest sin is not blaspheming the Holy Spirit, but offending somebody. Because everybody liked Jesus. I mean, they made him king, right? Oh, oh right. They killed him. Because everybody loved Jesus. Nobody was ever offended by Jesus. When our greatest fear is offending someone, that's being ashamed of the words of Jesus. You know, we don't have a lot of these guys here in Canada, but when I lived in South Florida, I swear every church had a guy who just made you cringe. The whole back of their car, you couldn't tell what color paint they had because it was covered in Christian bumper stickers, right? And they're all terrible. They all say things like, in case of rapture, vehicle will be empty. And like tons and tons of stuff like that. There was a guy in our church who was like this, and he had the largest collection of bad Christian t-shirts I've ever seen in my life. He's like the Amelda Marcos of bad Christian t-shirts. If you're young, Wikipedia that, okay? <laughs> So I remember this one shirt he had. It has a giant guitar pick on it, and it said, Pick Jesus, on the front of it. I was like, oh, that's, that's so terrible. As though me being so cool 
has caused thousands to come to the Lord. Right? I've realized I can say one thing about those guys. They are not ashamed of Jesus or his word. You don't believe me? Go read one of the 37 posts they made about Jesus on Facebook today. And I kind of wonder if we're going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to be like, that's my guy right there. How did you even get a pick Jesus shirt into heaven? That's amazing. Because... <laughs> and here's my point. If, if you make yourself more concerned with what Jesus thinks of you than what others think of you, you will spend eternity being glad you made that choice. You will reap the rewards of living that way forever. And if I'm honest, I live in a little bit of fear that that guy who makes me cringe because I know people think he's out of his mind may have a bigger reward than me in heaven one day. Jesus is going to be like, that guy was not ashamed. He was not ashamed. Jeff, he had 300 t-shirts that have my name on it. Do you, do you understand how hard it is to even find 300 t-shirts with my name on it? So anybody who would mock you or persecute you for being unashamed of Jesus and his words, do you know where they're going to be for all eternity? Not with you. Not with you. In fact, the Bible tells us they're going to be completely forgotten forever. But we're going to be with Jesus forever. So let's try to do better at worrying about what he thinks about the way we live. As I mentioned, there's a lot of confusion and fear that arises out of Jesus' words when he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is not speaking about losing your salvation. It's not everlasting life if you can lose it. That's false advertising. So write this down and I'll unpack it. Jesus is speaking of eternal rewards. He's speaking of eternal rewards. Well, how do we know that? We know it because the flow of the conversation is Jesus saying, this is what it means to follow me. Let me give you some motivation. The day is coming when you're gonna see me in my full glory with my angels. And then in Matthew's gospel, in the same account of this same incident, it adds some words onto the end. It records Jesus saying, for the son of man will come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Jesus directly links rewards with being ashamed or not being ashamed of him. So he motivates his disciples to not be ashamed of him or his words by reminding him, hey, you're going to see me coming in glory one day. That day is coming. And then secondly, I'm going to give you rewards according to your works, whether or not you're ashamed of me. Jesus isn't saying you can lose your salvation. He's saying you can miss out on eternal rewards. And when rewards are handed out, they may very well be some very awkward moments for those who were ashamed of Jesus and his words in the gospel. Because Jesus in that moment will be fully revealed. Nobody will be debating the existence of God in that moment. Nobody will be making fun of those who gave their lives to serve and follow Jesus. But there will be believers who will groan in that moment and say to themselves, why did I care what people thought of me? People. That's what we're going to think when we see Jesus. Jesus didn't ask us to go into all the world and make believers. He didn't say, go into all the world, get as many people to raise their hands as possible. Get as many people to pray that salvation prayer as possible. He says, go into all the world and make 
disciples. Disciples. Because that's who he wants us to be. Peter made the mistake of listening to the whisper of Satan. It's the voice that we all battle that says, you've got a better plan than God. If you're not living as a disciple today, could it be because you've been listening to that same whisper? Could it be that at the core of your being, you don't really believe that God's way is better? If that's you, stop being deceived. Stop buying into that lie. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. When we make the choice to follow Jesus, we're making the choice to follow him to the cross. We're making the choice to crucify our own will, our own agenda every single day. We're committing to die to ourselves every single day. We're committing to let Jesus set the agenda for our lives. That means where we live, what we do for a living, who we marry, how many kids we have, when we have kids, what we do with our money, who we share the gospel with, everything. None of that belongs to us. Even our decisions don't belong to us. They belong to the Lord who's purchased us at the expense of the body and blood of his son, Jesus. We belong to him. It's much easier to die once for Jesus than it is to die daily for Jesus. If you have the chance at martyrdom, there's a really good argument. You should probably take it. I'd be very tempted. It's good for us to stop and evaluate our lives. These questions are not for the purpose of condemnation. They're for the purpose of evaluation. How are you doing at dying to yourself every day? How are you doing at dying to yourself in your marriage? In fact, if you're having issues in your marriage, there's a 99.9999999999% chance that the cause of your issues is you are not denying yourself and dying to yourself. But you're sure that you want the other person to deny themselves and die to themselves. Jesus didn't give you that power. He only gave you the power to die to yourself on a daily basis. Single person, how are you doing at denying yourself in your dating life? Are you working God's plan or are you working your own plan? How are you doing at denying yourself as a father or as a mother? How are you doing at dying to yourself as a student or an employee? Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me. Here's the good news. It's a daily decision. So if you've blown it, you get to try again tomorrow. You wake up, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus as his disciple. Do you think that when Peter messed up, God didn't know that was going to happen? Do you think the father was in heaven like, oh, dang it, Peter. If I had known you were going to do that, I wouldn't have given that revelation to you. I would have given it to John or James. Five minutes and you've already blown it. Of course, that's not what happened. The Lord knew. He knew that Peter would be an incredible disciple one moment, five minutes later, give a stupid answer out of his own understanding. And the Lord still gave that revelation to Peter. Why? Because Peter had a desire to be a disciple. It all begins with that desire. And if you have that desire, the Lord will work through you too. He'll work in you as well. It's a daily decision. You can't embrace the cross without embracing the cost. 
There's no way around that. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much that you gave revelation to Peter, that you worked with a man who was brilliant one moment and a fool the next, just like us, just like us. And Lord, you built your church on the faith of that man and men like him. Father, thank you so much that our moments of failure don't cause you to abandon us. You remain faithful. Father, I pray right now that by your Holy Spirit, each of us would be bold enough to invite you to shine a light on any area of our lives where we've been working our plan instead of yours. God, would you help us to let those things go? Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to relinquish our rights and gladly confess, Lord, we belong to you. This area, this thing, this relationship, it belongs to you, Lord. Help us to lay those things at your feet and live today as a disciple of Jesus. And then wake up tomorrow and do the same thing again. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning, every morning. Just be still before the Lord. Allow him to speak to you. Allow him to illuminate those things. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.